It was right up four months ago, the first Sunday in March, that we began our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. I had no true idea since or how long it would take us to, to make it through this beautiful book, um, but may you know that today we will reach the halfway point of this journey. So I'm not saying it's going to take us four months to finish it. Lord knows how long it'll take us, and we'll discover it together week by week. We are going to actually make it through an entire chapter today. That is quite the feat. By the end of chapter 5, the preacher has made it very clear that without God, life is meaningless and miserable. But with God, life has purpose and there's great meaning found in living both having things and enjoying the things in which we have both of those things are gifts from god therefore it is useless for us to worship the gift instead of the gift giver two weeks ago i I made the uh, the statement that when we focus more on the gifts than we do on the giver of those gifts then we become guilty of idolatry. When we receive those gifts, but then we complain about the gifts, then we're guilty of uh, ingratitude. When we hoard His gifts that He has blessed us with and refuse to share those with others that are in need, then we're guilty of indulgence. Therefore, the ultimate call for us is to live our lives with open ears to hear and receive and respond to the Word of God and open hands so that we might receive His blessings and be a a channel through which His blessings can flow through our lives and into the lives of others so that we can be of help and assistance to others in their time of, of need so that God is glorified and praised all through the process. Now chapter 6 opens with the reality that there are some people that have much, but experience very little, if any, enjoyment. Look at verse number 1. It says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, And it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. So some people are given great wealth, So much wealth that they lack for nothing that they might desire. But, even though, in the midst of that, they're not even able to enjoy the things in which they have. The example that he gives is that someone comes along and enjoys it instead of them. Now he's talked about this back in chapter 5. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about, and we even identified this as being the, the second problem with greed, or the second problem that we have when we live for money, and that problem is other people will try to take it from us. 
And so he's going back to that same theme here at the beginning of chapter 6. And he says the reality of this is that this is a vanity. This is a severe affliction. This makes him sick and nauseous just even to, to think about. It was Martin Luther who was reading through these verses and he makes this statement. He says that these verses are a description of a rich man who lacks nothing for a good and happy life and yet does not have one. One of the strongest messages from chapter 6 is in the recognition of the fact that the things that we own can never provide us lasting joy. The gifts that we receive and the ability to enjoy those gifts are both given to us by God. So having gifts does not necessarily mean that one will enjoy the benefits or the blessings of those gifts. Both of them are given to us by God. That's why having more things, having more wealth, can never guarantee that we will find enjoyment or fulfillment in life. You see, without God at the center of our lives, then we will always be unfulfilled, dissatisfied, frustrated in living. And so this reality causes the preacher to give an extreme illustration to to prove his point. Look at verse number 3. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better than the miscarriage than he. Now, other translations render it slightly different. The ESV or the NIV or the New King James Version says it like this. He says, then I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. The preacher here is obviously using an extreme exaggeration in order to, to make his point. What he's saying is that no matter how much one might possess If you don't possess the power to enjoy those things, then you might as well have never been born. The writer of Ecclesiastes is not the only person to ever become so discouraged, dissatisfied, or frustrated with life that they either wish that they were dead or wish that they had never been born. There are many examples in the Scriptures of people who had reached that point of despair in their own lives. Uh, We'll go on a journey real fast. I'll show you some examples. We'll begin with Moses. Moses himself says in Numbers chapter 11, verse number 15, So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. Then we see examples like Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 as he came and he sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. 
Job and his cry of desperation in Job chapter 3, verse number 11 said, Why did I not die at birth? I've been better off never been alive in the, in the first place. Jeremiah, in, in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse number 10 says, Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me. Then Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Many people have uttered similar phrases in, in the Scriptures, and so we've returned back to our illustration that the preacher is given to us. And look at it again with, with fresh eyes. He says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice, and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. The futility of unenjoyed wealth is worse than the tragedy of a stillborn child. That's the point that the preacher is trying to make. Remember, he's talking about life lived under the sun in pursuit of what one desires, what what the individual wants, not a life that's lived under full submission uh, unto God. And so when you live under the sun, when you're living for yourself, then this is the reality that he's trying to, to paint for us. And so he uses this illustration to, to prove his point. And he starts off and he, he describes a, a rich individual and he uses exaggerated terms of extreme blessing in order to, to paint the picture for us. He talks about uh, an individual of great wealth, even going back to verse number 2. He has so much wealth that he lacks for, for nothing that he might desire. So he has a great wealth. He, he has a great family tree. A hundred children. Can only imagine. <laughs> wow. A very long life. Exaggerated terms again. A, a, a thousand years live twice. Nobody lives to be 2,000. So exaggerated terms to, to just to paint the picture of extreme blessing. And then the counter to that describes the stillborn. The stillborn is described in, in terms of ultimate futility. It says that the birth is in vain. It, it disappears into obscurity or it disappears into darkness. Its name is covered in obscurity or darkness. It never saw the light of day because it never saw the sun. It never had knowledge or, or wisdom. And yet... He says that this person is better off than the man of extreme blessing. Again, he says this in light of 
speaking in terms of life lived under the sun. And so what the preacher is doing is painting a very dark picture to help us to see the futility of living a life separated from or apart from God. And he's using this imagery to reveal the devastating darkness of atheistic humanism. And it is bleak. And in doing so, he reveals a genuine need for God. Without God in our lives, everything that we have, everything that we do, is meaningless, of no value, of no worth, can bring no satisfaction unto anyone. And so he continues the thought, and he says in verse number 7, he says, All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. And so in verse 7, the reference to a person's mouth indicates that the life is focused upon pleasure, right? And so such a person accepts the, the necessity of work, they, they understand that they have to work, but they accept the, the reality of working only as a means to uh, accumulate for themselves more wealth for personal enjoyment. Right? So they get it. Okay, I have to work. I have to work in order to receive more, and I want to receive more for my own benefit, for my own value. It's not a life that's lived focusing on receiving blessings from God to glorify Him, to help others, to serve others in need. No, their focus is on their mouth. Their focus is on themselves, on what they can get out of living. And so the verse represents the ultimate self-serving perspective on work. Life lived under the sun means that all of a man's labor is for their mouth. It's for themselves. Which is to say, people live to eat, and therefore they eat to live. They work in order that they might produce or buy food, so that they can eat the food, so that they're able to work, so that they can buy and produce more food, so that they can eat that food, so that they can go back to work. In other words, life is this unending quest for the very next meal. Never fully satisfied never fully complete, always longing for more. This unquenchable appetite is for far more common and to everyone. We all, apart from God, crave more. Whether rich or poor, whether or not they're wise or they're Foolish, everyone is on equal ground here. It's just to say that no matter what someone may acquire, no matter what they might achieve, no matter what they might aspire to in life, apart from God, it's never enough because it can't satisfy, it, it can't fulfill. Humans will always crave for more. And so the preacher takes this and he delivers two questions in order to fix this fact into our hearts and 
put it into our minds. He says in verse number 8, for, for what advantage does this wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Both of the answers to those questions are none. There isn't any. What's the advantage of the wise man over the fool? There's not one. What's the advantage that the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? There is none. Because if all you're doing is is living in order to satisfy your own appetite, then the wise man has no advantage over the fool, nor does the poor man have any advantage in trying to better his situation or his circumstance. There is no advantage. Because you'll always be frustrated. You'll never have enough. You'll never reach that goal that you're striving for. That's why we get to verse number 9. It says, what the eye is seeing is better than what the soul desires. And then we return to that familiar phrase where it says, this too is futility and striving after wind. You'll notice, hopefully you'll notice, that this will be the last time that we see that phrase, striving after wind. It is the ninth occurrence to this point in the book of Ecclesiastes. He doesn't return to it. He says when, when you're chasing after that next meal, when you're living your life only to satisfy yourself, you'll always crave for more. You're chasing after something that can never be caught. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. Because nothing on earth will ever satisfy the craving of one's soul. So through his writing, he has tried to encourage us that we might be content in what we have. That that we should be at peace with with what God has given unto us. May you understand that contentment is the only answer to the problem of having a greedy appetite. Only contentment can can conquer the constant craving for more. And I get it. Like I I, I really do. It, it It is so much easier to say, be content than it is to actually be content. It's easy to to tell others to do it, but it can be really hard to to practice it in our own lives. And so with that thought, just a little side note here, a little word of encouragement, if I may, on how to to be content in life. For me, the, the concept of contentment brings up two major questions. And I think when we answer those questions, then we're in a better position to be in a place of contentment. The first question that comes to my mind, at at least, is uh, how can we truly be content? How? What's the key? Well, the answer to the question is is an understanding that contentment is something that must be learned. It's something that we have to learn for ourselves. This is what Paul taught us in his letter to uh, the Philippians. He says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. 
I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So Paul learned contentment through personal experience. He had to experience and learn it for himself, which implies that that contentment isn't something that Paul always had. Contentment is something that he learned over the course of his life. And so when I think about that, then the challenge becomes, are we willing to pray things like, like, God, help me. God, give me the appropriate life experiences so that I might develop the proper attitude of having contentment, of being at peace with, with who I am and, and what I have in, in life. Contentment is something that is learned. So we as God's children need to be willing to, to go through those life experiences so that God can shape that attitude within each and every one of us. The second question that comes to my mind is, oh, that's the how, then, then what's the key? What's the key to contentment? I think the answer to that, or the key to contentment, is very simply, Jesus. It's, it's Christ. That's why the proper understanding of Philippians 4.13 leads us to realize that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's only because of Christ that I can face this time of hardship or I can live in a way that glorifies the Father in this season of blessing in my life. Whether I have much or I have little, it is only because of Christ that I can live in my life in a way that honors the Father. So, so contentment, it, it, the key to it all is Jesus Himself. And so, not only do we become content through the power of Christ, we ultimately, we are content when we find our satisfaction in the person of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And so, now we can set that little bonus message aside. Let's get back to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. You're going to see how this uh, second half of the the chapter kind of uh, gives us a a set of reflections upon uh, the limitations of humanity. And so, I just want to unpack those reflections for you real quickly. The first one, the first limitation of humanity is the realization that we are limited in knowledge, or more specifically, we are limited in creativity. Verse number 10 says, Whatever exists has already been named, 
and it is known what man is. Whatever exists has already been named. God in His providence, God in His power has already created everything in existence. The the preachers already referred to this. This should sound familiar. It goes all the way back to to chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse number 9, he says, That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. I'm off on my slides. There it is, right there for you. There's nothing new under the sun. Which means that we can be creative in the sense that as as humans we can be resourceful, we can be imaginative, we can be artistic, we can even be inventive. But we cannot technically be creative. We cannot create. That is what God has done. The author of Hebrews, returning back to the author it says in a very straightforward way in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 3, he says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, to create is to bring something into existence. And humans can't do this. Like, we can only work with what God has already created and established. We cannot bring anything into existence. We can't make something from nothing. That's what God, the Creator, has done. Secondly, picking up in verse number 10, we understand that we're limited in power. The verse continues and it says, For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. The created cannot compete with the Creator. God is infinitely stronger than any and all of us. The sovereignty of God is indisputable. Therefore, we are to trust in Him. If we'll lean into Him, if we'll trust in Him, then He will guide us, He will direct us, He will strengthen us, He will sustain us, and He will never leave us. Ever. And so the the limitations continue in verse number 11. We're limited in speech and understanding. Verse 11 says, For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? Talking a lot is one way that uh, we have a tendency to try to rise above our limitations. With the use of many words, we will try to rationalize or explain away our behaviors. But when we do this, the use of many words only makes things worse. It increases futility. So even our ability to talk and communicate gives us no real advantage in life. And then finally, the crowning limitation is our inability to to know the future. Verse 12 says, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow, 
For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Again, the double question is to be answered in the negative. Who can tell him? Who knows? Well, the answer is, no one knows but God. God is the only one. No one truly knows the future except for our Heavenly Father. The one thing that we know with certainty is that death is coming for each and every one of us. The moment we're we're born, we're just born ultimately to to meet death in, in one way, except for the Lord's return, then every single person will die. So the only thing that we can know for certain is that death is coming. So therefore, we had better make the best use of the limited time that we have. And we're not promised another moment. Therefore, we ought not to waste a single moment. We shouldn't put off, we shouldn't delay making the decisions that honor and glorify the Father for another day when we should be making those decisions right now, right here. Because we don't know how long we have. I'm not trying to like intentionally like scare you with words, but the reality is there's a likelihood that not all of us will be back a week from now. We're not promised it. Our, our time on earth could end at any moment upon our Lord's choosing. So we ought to take very serious the time that we have. And so with this thought, right, we, we've now reached the, the halfway point through the book of Ecclesiastes. And to this point, he's, he's given us two major arguments We're about to get to the third, but before we get to the third, let's highlight the other two. From chapter 3 to chapter 5, verse number 9, this first major argument was talking about the monotony of of life, right? That we have no control over life, right? God is the one that is sovereign over all the aspects and details of life. We have no control over when we are born or when we die, for example, It's all in the sovereign hands of God. In response to the monotony of life, this is what the preacher says in chapter 3. Chapter 3, he says, I know that there's nothing better for them than to recognize and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That's the, that's the summary statement, or the summary conclusion, from his observation about the monotony of life. And then we get to, to chapter 5, verse number 10, through chapter 6 that we just finished. And now he, he makes a second argument over the futility of, of wealth. In response to the futility of wealth, he said back in chapter 5, Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. 
This is the gift of God. And you understand that the book of Ecclesiastes isn't this dreadful take on life that is so sad and overwhelming. When you look at it properly, you have a better understanding that uh, the, the preacher makes his observations of, of what he's experienced and what he has seen. And through life, through living, and through observing of others and the circumstances of life, he comes to the beautiful conclusion that but for God, it's all meaningless. There's no advantage to anything or to anyone apart from God. So there's a better way for us to live. Because life lived under the sun, that's his phrase, under the sun, life is monotonous and empty. But it doesn't have to be that way. There's a better way for us to live. There's a better way for us to experience life. Rather than living and remaining under the sun, we should set our hearts, our minds, our, our whole focus on life above the sun. Life lived under heaven under the, the authority, the rule and reign over the Creator of all things, that if we will submit and surrender our lives unto the King of kings, then there's a better way for us to experience life. We'll have a better understanding of, of the circumstances we face. We'll learn to be content through the trials we go through so that we'll fully trust and have confidence in our Savior that no matter what we face, He'll never leave us, He'll never neglect us, He'll never ignore us, He'll always sustain us, always guide us, always direct us, so that we don't have to look at the world to figure out what's the right thing to do. No, we fix our eyes upon the Savior. And we trust in Him. We trust in His Word in a culture, in a time that has completely abandoned the truth of God's Word, what do you expect? It's the depravity of man. The hope for our nation, the hope for our community will never be found in an election cycle. It's not going to be found in the next president, the next governor, the next senator. The hope is in Christ. In Christ alone. And and if you're a child of God, and you've received that hope, you have assurance, right? You have a deeper understanding. Then the beautiful part is, because you belong to Him, God gives you a spiritual gift so that you're to use that and to exercise that so that you can communicate the truth of God's love, the truth of God's Word to a world that's in desperate need of knowing the truth. So we get to play a part. Every member of the body of Christ is a minister of the gospel of Christ. What's your ministry? Where's your place of service? What are you doing for the glory of God, for the strengthening of His church? And if you're not doing it now, what are you waiting for? This church will be a place that will encourage you with the teaching of His Word, that will help to equip you with the resources that are necessary 
so that you can walk in faithfulness to the calling that God puts upon your life. Not everybody has the same kind of calling. God will call some of us into the mission field, and we will leave our families, our home, and everything that we know in order to go serve the King of Kings in a place that's unknown to us. God will call some of us to a vocational ministry where we will give our lives in service to the church for the building up of the church and the equipping of God's people so that they can understand how God has gifted them and they can walk in faithful obedience to that gifting. And then for others, for the vast majority, God will use you where you are. In your families, in the community in which you live, in the church that you belong, if you will walk in submission unto him. My desire is that we will fully give ourselves to the calling that God has put on our lives and that we will walk in encouraging one another, supporting one another, and holding one another accountable to being faithful to what God has called us to do. Let's pray, church. Father, I thank you for this place. God, I thank you for five years of of service and ministry here, and I look forward to to what's in store as we continue to move forward with our eyes fixed upon you. God, help us to, to love you and love your word more than we love anyone or anything else. God, give us a, an understanding of what you have called us to. And bend and break our wills where necessary, Father, that we might live in rightful obedience to your word and to your will for our lives. In this time of response and upon listening into the words of the preacher, Father, I pray that your spirit would make known unto us sins to confess, commitments to make, decisions to share, whatever must be done in this moment for us to leave in a right relationship with you. Make it happen, Father. Only you can make it happen. Make it happen, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.